Well, good morning. Oh, that's hot right there. <laughs> well, hey, we're going to be in John 19 if you want to turn there in your Bible. And I'm so excited to get to celebrate the resurrection with you this morning. If, if you're a guest here today, we, we want to thank you for being here. Also, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want you to understand that we have been praying for you. I don't know who specifically you are, but the church has bathed this day in prayer and has bathed you in prayer. And we're praying that you would respond to the call of the Holy Spirit and today you would find salvation. But let's, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time and that we would celebrate Him by looking at what He did on the cross for us. God, you are kind, you are king, and we love you. Lord, I pray that as your word is being proclaimed throughout the country and the world today, that there would be a great harvest. God, we pray that millions of people would put their faith and trust in you today, and that, and that there would be a great revival, and that your truth would go forward. Lord, we love you, and we are looking forward to the day that you're coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, we're going to be in John 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, here's a question for you this morning. The, the title of the, 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 the sermon is called, For Love's Sake. What would you do for love? How far would you go for love? Would you be willing to look like a fool for love, right? The, 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 the TV industry, the entertainment industry has made millions of dollars bringing these stories to life of what we would do for love, answering that question. And it makes us kind of the people, and I'm not saying it as a bad thing, but we romanticize every situation, don't we? And I know it's not cool, but I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm a romantic, and I think most of us are, deep down. So when I was in college, I, I met Jordan. I met this girl who I was completely taken by. I, I thought she was attractive. I thought she was smart. I thought she was sweet. And the, the, the more I got to know her, the more I thought that she might be the one. So finally, I got the courage to ask her out. I, I'm, I mustered all of I was going to ask her to go get some dinner or something like that, you know. So I, I say, hey, I'd like to talk to you. And I, I go and we sit down and, we, I, I, and the, the room started spinning. My neck got red. I, I felt myself get flushed. When I get embarrassed, I feel my ears get red. I felt my ears get red and, and, and the words started going faster than my mind could work. And I don't know what happened, but I ended up saying, hey, I think you ought to consider marrying me. Now, I would not have asked her out or intended to ask her out had I not want her to consider that. But like, I'm not crazy. I'm not trying to insert the marriage conversation into you want to get some ice cream conversation, right? <laughs> so she politely said that she was not interested in being in a relationship right now. And that's a lot better than I deserve. But what I heard was just not right now. Like Dumb and Dumber, where the guy's like, so you're saying I got a chance. <laughs> so I just waited till whenever now would be. And uh, I waited about a year, and I came back more resolute and moronic than ever. 
But this time, I actually got the right words out. Hey, do you want to go grab some ice cream? And here we are. <laughs> Worked out for me. So I was willing to look like a fool for love because that second time, I mean, I could have got shut down harder. But this morning, that's what we're talking about is love. And don't be mistaken. The Bible is nothing less than a cosmic love story. There's no greater display of love than God dying for man. For love's sake, Jesus, the king, was made to look like a fool. For love's sake, Jesus was mocked and beaten and ridiculed. For love's sake, Jesus was nailed to a cross. For love's sake, Jesus died in our place. For love's sake, Jesus rose from the grave, and on the third day, he offered salvation to anyone who would believe. Jesus did all of this for love's sake. So this morning, we're going to be in John 19, 28, and we're, this is what we're going to read about the extent that Jesus was willing to go for love. Where we pick up, Jesus has already endured those mock trials, He's been beaten, he's been nailed to a cross, and now he's hung there for a number of hours. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 28, if you'll look with me. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, a thirst. A jar, of full, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. The soldiers that came and they broke the legs of the first, and the other one who was crucified with them, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. He who, saw witness, uh, he who bore witness to this, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you might believe. And this is talking about the author, John. He was there. He saw it. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on them whom they've pierced. So we're going to take this in, in two major sections. The first is verses 28 through 30, and we're going to see the debt paid in full. The setting of this fatal and faithful day is Passover. Understand that the same day that Jesus is being executed the Passover lambs are being slaughtered all throughout the city. And God, he instituted the Passover feast to be done every year to remind Israel of God's power and God's deliverance. This Passover, God would be delivering, but this Passover would be different because he would be delivering his people from the bondage of slavery. And, and he would set them free from sin. In the Old Testament, when Israel was enslaved to Egypt, y'all remember this, it's in the book of Exodus, that 
he inflicted a, a number of plagues on the people of Egypt so that they would let the people go, that they would let Israel go. And the final plague was that he would send his spirit from door to door, and anyone who's, who's, who didn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, they would... The, the, the wrath and the judgment of the Lord wouldn't pass over him. And they were to place it there with a hyssop branch. So, as the story goes, God went from house to house, killing all the firstborn. And when the angel of God came to the homes that had the blood applied, those are the ones who he passed over. And after this final plague, Egypt, uh, Exodus tells us, in Egypt, a, a well went out through, through the land, right? And finally, a broken-hearted Pharaoh allowed Israel to go free. This is the scene. This scene is the backdrop to the cross. And this is shadowing. You've got you to understand the Jewish people are a people who, 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 who tell stories, who learn in images and imagery. And this one that we're reading this morning is just jam-packed with imagery. And the imagery is how God brought his people from the the land of sin and oppression to the land of freedom. D.A. Carson, he gives this illustration about the Passover night. He says, there, there were, imagine there are two men talking. One of, one of the men, he was afraid and he was, he was filled with anxiety. He had one son and he was worried that, that the, the Spirit of the Lord wouldn't pass over their home. And there was another man, and he, he was a guy of great faith. He was, he, had, he was brave, he had courage, and he, he kept asking the other guy, he's like, well, did you apply the blood? Did you put it on the door? And the, and the other man, the one with the weaker faith, was like, yeah, I did, but, yeah, I, and, and the other man's just trying to encourage him, but he was, he's just filled with doubt. As he keeps saying yes, he just has more and more questions because he doesn't want his son to be killed. That night when the angel of the Lord passed over their homes, whose son lived? The one with the great faith or the one who struggled with doubt? The answer is both. Whose son was killed? Neither. Why? I want you to hear me on this. It's not the quality of one's faith that gives that faith validity and power because God, we're told in the scripture, gives each man a different measure of faith. Our faith will waver because we are a wavering people. The object of our faith is what gives our faith validity and power. Not the quality of the faith, but the object of the faith. I mean, think about the Great Commission. Jesus is, he goes there in Matthew 28. They've already seen him rose from the day, grave. They've already, they've already witnessed the empty tomb. They already see him come, come, in, the, um, come in the upper room. They, the disciples see all this, and Jesus says, you know, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. We, we know that passage well. But if you go one verse back, Jesus is commanding them, and it says, and still they doubted. Still some doubted. We struggle. But it's not about the, the strength of our faith. Faith in, in God's word is often mixed with doubt. 
Faith is often mixed with anxiety, yet hear me. This, this is what I want you to, to pull from this illustration. Our faith is only as good as the object of our faith, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Amen? Amen. So I'd like you to look quickly back at your, your text, and you'll, you'll notice in, in that first verse about the hyssop branch. And I want you to see how hard John is trying to draw our attention to Jesus being this Passover lamb. This is what this whole passage is, is pointing to, that Jesus is this Passover lamb. The instrument that God told Israel to administer the blood to the doorpost was a hyssop branch. The image of them sticking that hyssop branch up in the air is to remind the people of the blood being applied to the doorpost and God's judgment passing by. Had the Jewish people just known the truth at the Passover and not applied the blood to their doorpost, would the wrath of God pass over their homes? No. The wrath of God would not have passed over. The wrath of God will not relent unless you come to God. So here's my question for you. Not do you know these things about God to be true. Not do, you know these, not do you understand that there is a risen Savior. I mean, the devil knows. But have you applied the blood of Jesus to the doorpost of your heart? Have you believed? If not, the wrath of God will not pass over you. Everyone wants the kingdom of God, but few people want God as king. Often we make the father this mean rule-keeping one. He's up there keeping records of all of our sins. And the son is just keeping the father at bay against us. That's just not what the Bible teaches. Jesus isn't up there just trying to convince God to love us. Jesus is the acting out of the love of the father. Jesus is the expression of the father's love. John 3, 16, we all know this, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die so that we would have eternal life. Jesus is the self-expression of the love of God. Jesus is the manifestation of the love of God to you. So why did Jesus die? Why did the father give up his son? For love. For love's sake, Jesus died. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, we, we find this, this phrase, it is finished. After Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. Like, Jesus is God. He's in control of this situation. He waited to, till everything to be concluded, and they did not take his life, but he gave his spirit up. Even on the cross, Jesus is in control. So what exactly was finished? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Well, what is finished is the demand of the law. So in, in this culture, in Roman culture, when, when, a, when the, a judge would have made a, uh, declared a sentence against a guilty party and that sentence was complete, he would say this Greek word, it is finished. What was incomplete in the law was accomplished in Christ. 
Christ is the completion. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Because man is un- utterly incapable to keep the law. Let me, the law just primarily, it serves as a mirror. And as we glance into it, so imagine walking up to the, the and we use this illustration often. Imagine walking up to the law and, and staring into it as a mirror. And it, it just exposes you. And it shows you as a lawbreaker and that you're utterly incapable of keeping the law. And we, we know the law, right? The law, uh, let's just talk about the Ten Commandments. There's way more commandments than that, but let's talk about the ten that we know. The law tells us that we are not to lie, we're not to steal, we're not to, we're not to commit adultery, we're not to commit murder, we're not to blaspheme. And if we were honest and we walked through each one of these things, we would all admit that we've lied, we would all admit that we've stolen something no matter the value, if it's cheating on a test, taking someone else's answers, or if it's uh, cheating on our taxes or whatever it is, we've all, we've all lied, we've all stolen. The Bible tells us if we, are, if we look at, at a woman with lust that we've committed adultery in our heart, so not even our actions, God's judging the intent of our heart. We would all confess to being, at this point, lying, thieving adulterers. He also tells us if, if you hate in your heart, if you, if you want bad for someone else in your heart, if you're angry in your heart against another, that God judges that as murder. So, again, if we're standing in front of the mirror of the law, the law is revealing to us that we're, we're lying, thieving, murderous adulterers who have blasphemed the name of God. We are hopeless apart from the work of Jesus. We cannot get to God, so God came to us. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no removal of sin. Jesus, his blood being shed for us is the only way that our sin can be removed. So Jesus finished, Jesus fulfilled the law. Christ's death provided an actual atonement with God. Christ's death actually removes the blame of our sin in the eyes of God. The phrase, it is finished, it's, it's actually just one Greek word. The word is in the perfect tense. It's a, it's a verb. And a verb in the, uh, the perfect tense is an action that's been completed in the past that has effects that carry indefinitely into the future. For instance, I have set my Bible down. Now, and that will indefinitely be there. The effect is completed in the past and it carries out into the future. Well, Jesus' work on the cross... When he declares it is finished, that which has been paid was fully accomplished and the effects of it carry indefinitely into the future. It is finished was not a cry of defeat. It is finished was a cry of victory. His cry of victory came not because he was dying a horrible death, but because God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Tetelestai is the word that we translate, it is finished. And the word would have been used in the first century marketplace to in, indicate the completion of a transaction. And the tr- at, the, at the conclusion of a transaction, they would declare Tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus did not say, I'm finished. With a loud cry, he said, it is finished. The cry was paid in full. So what was paid in full? The sin of Adam and every man who came after him. Our debt deserves destruction. While man alone owes the debt, God alone can pay the debt. Tetelestai means paid in full. God being rich in love sent his one and only son because he loves you. His love for you, his knowing that we could not pay the bill, his his compassion for us, Jesus' submission to God is why he took our place. Jesus defines the greatest kind of love as the kind of love that someone would lay down their life for a friend. What Jesus did on the cross was the picture of the greatest kind of love, but it was even greater than what he defined because at this point, we're not friends with God. We, as a human race, were enemies of God. Look, look at Romans 5, 7 on the screen. It says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his what? God shows his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The creator of the universe loves you. The holy sovereign God loves you. When you believe in Christ and his blood has been applied to you, your debt is tetelestai, paid in full. Colossians 2.13 says this, talking about our debt. And you were dead in your trespasses. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by, look at verse 14, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So after you put your faith in Jesus, your account reads, paid in full. When the Romans would go to war, at the completion of a battle that they won, do you know what they would proclaim? As a sign of victory? To tell us die. It is finished. It is finished shows that the, the sentence has been carried out. It is finished shows that the debt has been paid. It is finished is God's declaration that the victory has been won. Let's look now at verses 31 through 37. Verse 31 tells us that this was the day of preparation. The the Jews, they worshiped on Sabbath, Saturday. We worship on Sunday because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. The, The next note tells us that this is a high Sabbath. That means randomly this year that, or sovereignly, I guess, that the, the, 
that Saturday fell on the same day as, as uh, Passover, so that made it a, a high Sabbath. And having Passover fall on the Sabbath made that a, an elevated day of worship. And these Jewish spiritual leaders, they didn't want Jesus to run their extra special day. So they went to Pilate and they asked him to break the legs so that they would sure to be dead by the time that sun went down because the law in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 tells us that anyone who's hung on a tree should not remain overnight because that person was under God's curse and to leave him would desecrate the land. They didn't want Jesus to, to, to spoil their day. They didn't want the land to be desecrated. But look at this. this. This whole next section that John's showing us is he's showing us how God has woven this story together from, from the beginning to this point. Because had Jesus been left on the, the, the cross as was the normal mode of operation, he wouldn't have been put in the tomb. He wouldn't have been in the tomb for three days to rise again. Isn't that cool how God, God's working all these things together? So they, they, they went to Pilate. Pilate gave them the go-ahead. And the breaking of the legs was done with this, with this big hammer. And the process was so violent that normally it killed the person. And it was counted as another uh, form of punishment on top of the crucifixion. And so that's what they would do. And then for good measure, I mean, these Romans... They knew how to kill. For good measure, they would then stab the person with a spear to make sure they were dead. When they came to Jesus to break the legs, they saw that he was already dead. And it sounds like the breaking of the legs was quite a process. And the Romans were like, I'm not going to do that. So instead, they just stabbed him. And um, they inflicted the, the death stroke to make sure he was dead. And the, the width of the wound... The, the Roman spearhead was very large. The width of the wound would have been about the size of a grown man's hand. So Jesus was clearly dead, and the final death stroke made sure of it. And from his side, blood and water ran. I want you to see this picture. Again, John's painting biblical pictures for us. The blood of Christ buys our pardon, and the water of uh, that flowed from his side gives us life. Hebrews 9, 12 speaks of the blood showing that Jesus, he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And in the Holy of Holies, there is the mercy seat. And there, Jesus once and for all placed the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Now there's no sacrifice left to be made because it's been paid in full. But don't, don't miss the picture of the water from Exodus 17, 6. Israel is wandering in the wilderness of sin, about to die for a lack of water. And it was there that Moses was told to strike the rock, right? And so Moses, he struck the rock, and there was enough water that came out of the rock to give life to the entire nation of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10.4 shows us that Christ is the spiritual rock that was struck for us. As Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, giving life to the nation, God struck the rock of ages 
on the cross. And from Jesus, spiritual life flows for all of those who would take a drink. Jesus was thirsty, and in his final hours, in our hate, we gave him sour wine. And in his love, he gave us spiritual, life-giving water to all who would drink. John 4.13, Jesus is talking about this water. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Talking about this water again, in, in John 7, uh, 37, Jesus stood up and cried to the crowd with a loud voice saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Come to Jesus today and drink that life-giving water and experience eternal life. John 19, 35 through 36 takes time out of this narrative to repeat twice that not a bone was broken. Because again, our author is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So these are the instructions for the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, 46. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Again, in Numbers 9, 12, just so that we wouldn't miss it, talking about the Passover lamb, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statutes. For the Passover, they shall keep it. Jesus is our Passover lamb that was slain for the world as our sacrifice. The same time these, these religious were sacrificing lambs all throughout the city, the Lamb of God was being sacrificed on a cross. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Look now at verse 37. John, he, he gives us a hard shift from the Passover imagery in verse 37 to a scripture reference from, your Bible will probably show you, Zechariah 12.10. It says, they will look on, the, on him whom they've pierced. So in Zechariah, God is speaking to Israel, telling them that a great day of salvation is coming. I've been reading this in my personal quiet time. This Zechariah is a cool book. All sorts of Jesus images in that book. So this is the full quote, though, from Zechariah 12.10. says this, I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. When they look on who? Who's speaking? Come on, church. Who's speaking here? God. God is speaking to the prophet. I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him. Who is being pierced? Who's speaking? When they look on me, Jesus. Jesus is God. God says that the one they are piercing is me. 
How can man reach into heaven and pierce Yahweh? It's obvious that, that, that man cannot strike God, man cannot strike at God. God came down. That's the gospel. They who pierce God represents all of humanity. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he told us so. And then he did miracles to attest to this. And without the piercing of God, there would be no grace poured out on us. And John is telling us that the one who hung on the cross, who suffered the, this sinner's death, this is God. Remember how he opened the book? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The image of God who's pierced should not be forgotten when we look at the cross. John in Revelation sees this risen Christ enthroned in heaven and ready to come back and judge the nations. And this is, I'm going to read from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7. So just listen to me. Talking about Jesus who, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with a cloud and every eye will see him. Even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Sin is a self-inflicted wound by man that requires our souls be shattered in hell. That's what sin requires. But the scandal of the cross is that though sin is self-inflicted by man, God chose to be the one afflicted for sin. God was struck. God was stripped. God was spat upon. God was strung up to a tree and nailed there. God was stabbed with a spear. John, he sees this future image of Jesus coming back on a cloud the risen, crucified Christ, crowned in glory. He sees him coming back. And we creatures who crucified the Christ, and we creatures who pierced his side and nailed him there, we will see those wounds and we will wail on account of him. His judgment is coming to all who do not believe. And he will judge both the living and the dead. It will be fearful for those who have not drank from the fountain of life that pours from Jesus' side. Today, turn and accept the love of Jesus. Like I said, Revelation 1.5 says this, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. Because Jesus loved us, he gave his blood and he set us free. Jesus chose to be our Passover lamb for love. It was love's sake that motivated him to do so. But today we're not celebrating that Jesus died for us. We're celebrating that he rose from the dead. Because he lives 
because that tomb is empty, we know that he is our Passover lamb. Because that tomb is empty, we know that Jesus is God. Because that tomb is empty, we know that his work till tell us die. It's finished. We do not serve a dead king, but we're here this morning celebrating a risen Savior. Jesus, after he breathed his last breath, you'll continue reading in, in, this, in this account, we see that he's laid in Joseph's tomb, but that's not where Jesus stayed. On Sunday, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and Jesus is alive. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to hear this truth. I want you to, to, to consider calling out on him for salvation because he will save you. But what do we all do with this, those of us who are believers? For love's sake, Jesus died for us. And for love's sake, we now live for him. Amen? God gave us the model of how we are to love. God became one of us. Jesus did all of this for the sake of love. My plea to you is that you would live in light of the love that Jesus has given to you and you would display it to the world around you. Some reasons people tell me that they don't, they don't share, they don't go to the communities, they don't share the gospel with their friends is that they're just too different. They're too far gone. They're too whatever. Jesus did not wait for us to look like him. Jesus did not wait for our politics to be like his. Jesus was king and he knew it. He still came to us. He didn't panic because the culture was too far gone. He became a man and he looked like us. He dressed like us. He ate our food. He immersed himself in our culture. He spoke our language. For love's sake, Jesus embraced us. And for love's sake, I pray that we would be a people who embrace a lost and dying world, that we would immerse ourselves in these people's lives and that they would see the light of Christ shining out from us and that we would be bold enough to share because what do we know? Souls are on the line. For love's sake, don't let your politics be the reason you lose your testimony. For love's sake, don't let fear be the reason that you don't have a testimony. For love's sake, die to yourself and love them. How do we love them? By sharing the love of Jesus. So, Today, you've got two choices. Believer, apathy or obedience. Apathy looks like, oh, we, we cute sermon, thank you. You yelled at us for a while, that's great. Apathy looks like leaving and not doing anything with this. I believe that this is the command of the scriptures. And we will give an account for how we responded to the command. 
We can respond with apathy or obedience, but I want you to understand there's no neutrality. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the band's about to come and, and play. We're going we're gonna to sing one last song. But I want you to understand that this is the same for you as well. There's no neutrality. It's either apathy or obedience. Apathy looks like you not putting your faith and trust and repenting of your sins and calling out for, for forgiveness. Apathy will lead you to hell. But if today you'll put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you'll find a king who loves you, a king who died for you, and a king who will give you eternal life. If you will, bow your heads with me. In the back, if, if you want to pray, we're, we're going to have prayer partners standing in the back, and they're, they're going to be back there ready to pray with you. I'm going to be in this front corner right here. I'd love to pray with you. But we would love to answer any questions you might have about what it means to come to Christ.